Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. It's the 9th of September 2022. Um, you are with Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch, the co-editors Prashant and Zoe. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. It's the 93rd episode of your favorite weekly news half an hour update from around the world. Well, um, update from around the world because today I'm in Ireland, Zoe is in Brazil, and Prashant is in India. Can't have a more global news show than this. Um, at least three continents, several time zones, just for you. Um, I'm in Ireland, and yesterday I was coming across um, the waters to the Aran Islands, and I got a message that uh, the Queen is dead. Now, very interesting, friends. Um, you know, and give the people what they want. We talk about world news and so on. It was curious how people around the world started to refer to the fact that the queen had died. Not the queen of this country or that country, but simply the queen. Um, of course, in Ireland, there was a strange reaction because people immediately had a kind of celebratory tone. Now, bear in mind that a woman in her 90s has just died. Her family has lost her. They are sad. Um, her son, uh, you know, would grieve her other son and so on. Um, this is a matter for, for a family, but also, of course, she is the monarch of a, of a country, uh, the United Kingdom, which includes Scotland, Wales, and to some extent, um, off and on the northern counties of Ireland. Um, but there was a kind of mixed reaction in the world. And I wanted to register this before we got into um, the rest of our program, I want to register the fact that there was this mixed reaction. Very interesting that on social media sites like Twitter, for instance, um, you know, Twitter in India, Twitter in Ireland, Twitter on the African continent, um, Twitter, in fact, in former British colonies, seem not to have the tears uh, of, um, of sadness that one saw uh, from people in North America, strangely a former colony of, of, the, of the British, um, North America, British Isles, particularly in England and perhaps in some other parts of the country. Um, great despair at the loss of the Queen. The Daily Mail, in fact, ran a story this morning which said that there was a cloud formation above England which resembled the Queen. Strange things happening in England. Um, you see, uh, it has to be recognized that Mary... Uh, Windsor uh, was not just an individual. She was also the head of uh, empire in her early youth and then eventually the head of what was known as the Commonwealth. I feel that we sometimes forget that in the colonized parts of the world, including in the Caribbean, there is a great sense of resentment and hostility towards what the British had done. In fact, only within uh, the last couple of years, the island of Barbados uh, left the Commonwealth, um, le left the, um, the monarchy, the institution of the monarchy. They decided no longer to uh, recognize Queen Elizabeth uh, or anybody sitting in, in the uh, chair in Buckingham Palace as the, the monarch. They became a republic. Um, that's the sentiment, in fact, with which 
um, the death of, of uh, Queen Elizabeth II was greeted in many parts of the world. Um, it wasn't uh, an unnatural sentiment given the kind of history of British colonialism. Um, and not just the history of British colonialism, but also how Britain has dealt with its colonies subsequent to the independence of many of them. Bear in mind, during the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, a Britain at the start of her reign was in the midst of a terrible, brutal campaign in Kenya and in Malaya to hold those colonies with brutal force. Um, in the middle of her reign, Britain went to war on the island of Malvinas against the government of Argentina to defend a colonial outpost. Um, toward the end of her reign, Britain has asserted itself uh, with a so-called global posture under the prime ministership of former prime minister Boris Johnson, uh, sending a um, aircraft carrier group known as Queen Elizabeth II, in fact, into the South China Sea. Um, this is a history in her many years. She was the uh, crowned queen of, of England and other parts of the world in 1953. In her many years, um, Queen Elizabeth II of England um, presided over a attempted hold on to an empire in great decline. And that's the reason why, I think, and I wanted to say this at the start, that's the reason why in many parts of the world, there was not the kind of sadness. There was not the journalist looking up at the clouds and seeing the outline of Queen Elizabeth II's head. In fact, there was rage about the empire. People are still raging against the empire in many parts of the world. And that, in a way, I suspect needs to be registered. Raging against the empire, the French empire as well, in places like Haiti, raging against the empire in Mali, where the French troops have been thrown out, uh, raging against the empire, Zoe, in Haiti. Take us to Haiti. Well, Haiti has been involved in a series of uh, mobilizations and popular uprisings really since 2018 um, when gas prices were increased and people took to the streets en masse to protest this. Um, and it's been involved in a series and a wave of uprisings since then um, that have been provoked by different things, um, whether it be the gas uh, price increase, the increase of the basic food basket that's been happening. Um, generalized um, discontent with those that really uphold this ruling class um, to essentially pillage um, the country to hand over the riches of the country to outside of it. Um, Haiti is home to many different um, sweatshops of transnational corporations. Um, the government is essentially has to be approved by a group called the core group, which is a group of different ambassadors from the United States, from France, from other EU countries. There's a representative of the United Nations. Haiti is a country that has had its, its political and economic system essentially under the boot of imperialism um, for, for decades. Um, Haiti is one of the countries that has paid the highest price um, for rebelling against French colonialism, for demanding freedom, for putting an end to slavery, for being one of the fun first countries in the hemisphere to put an end to slavery and to establish an independent black republic. It has constantly uh, and continuously been paying this price. And so in the recent days, 
Um, mobilizations have picked up once again. As I said, part of this larger trend that's been happening over the past several years in kind of a revolt against neoliberalism, which manifests in the increase in the basic daily life um, goods. And uh, this has been aggravated, of course, by, for example, the earthquakes that have taken place in the past um, couple of years, the assassination of Jovenel Mois, uh, who had already uh, been viewed with a lot of distrust by the Haitian people because he overstayed his term by an entire year. Um, so there's been a flurry of kind of different factors that have made this crisis even worse. And now on the anniversary, essentially, of one year of Ariel Henry, who took over control following the assassination of Jovenel Mois as acting prime minister, acting president, um, people are once again on the streets and they're demanding that after all of these years of popular mobilization, of making clear and concrete demands about how the people want to move forward, how they want to transition to a true democracy that represents the interests of the Haitian people, that once again there's another leader taking advantage of the instability, taking advantage of support uh, from the United Nations, from France, from the, um, and from the United States um, to essentially run the country how he wishes without listening to the people. And so since the 22nd, people have been on the streets. Um, they've been raising these demands of a political nature. They've been raising demands of an economic nature related to the consistent um, devaluation of their currency, the consistent increase in the cost of these basic goods, as I mentioned, that's been happening over the past several years. And then also what they see as a growth and in insecurity um, in daily life. So, for example, the growth of armed gangs and their control over large parts of the country. This has been consistently denounced as a pro byproduct of um, this lawlessness that the government of Ardeal Henry has kind of implanted. And so people are once again on the streets. I really recommend people check out the recent interview we've published with Haitian journalist uh, Jean Waltes. He spoke to Tanya Wadma uh, from our, our team really about all of these crucial issues and what is their vision um, for getting out of this crisis. People talk about the crisis in Haiti a lot, but they refuse to actually talk to Haitian people who are organized um, and have a vision for what the country can look like and should look like with all of their natural resource wealth, with all of the, uh, you know, they have a huge young population ready to work, ready to be engaged in society. And these aspirations have been consistently crushed by um, imperialists. So check out the interview and follow Haiti always raging against um, French colonial legacy in Haiti, also raging in the Mediterranean. Prashant, when you uh, told me about the story, I, I looked and saw the numbers of people that are going across and the deaths and so on. Um, Mediterranean COVID is over, but the Mediterranean is back. What's going on now? Right, Vijay, this is of course a, <clears throat> a trend that has been going on for many years and we'll come to some of the more uh, dangerous rhetoric around it. But of course, the recent instances of <clears throat> a boat comprising migrants from Lebanon and Syria, who are about over 60 migrants uh, trying to sort of escape conflict zones uh, in a boat which apparently should have carried five to six people. So that is the extent to which this boat was overloaded. There were holes in the boat. They were trying to sort of <clears throat> remove water using buckets and mugs to sort of keep the boat afloat. And this boat was allowed to, you know, uh, this strand, these migrants were stranded in this boat for over a week. And despite, and despite this, no real action from 
uh, you know any country in the region everyone sort of trying to push the blame and the responsibility onto other countries and it was after over a week close to 10 days i believe that they were finally rescued in the past few days that to by a private tanker and this really shows i think the extent of cruelty which sort of defines a lot of how affairs are conducted in our world these days because you have 60 migrants many of whom were children reports say that at least three children are believed to have died at this point of time in at least in one case definitely due to dehydration as well so people trying to escape conflict zones stranded in the sea despite you know this grand wealth that lies lies with many european countries there was not even enough humanity so to speak to you know rescue these uh, people and they were just seen as dispensable uh human beings caught in the boat and this kind of i think brings uh, attention to an issue we often talked about on this show which is how many of these european countries have been treating refugees who seek to escape various crises various kinds of crises let's be clear but the common factor to many of these crises is the fact that the, there was definitely european intervention uh in many in many of these countries we're talking about of course uh, regions in north africa we're talking about regions in west asia and a similar issue maybe uh in latin america and central america as well where again the united states policies of the united states have led to conditions that cause this kind of uh migration and the kind of refugee crisis we're talking about now europe's response has to been to, been to largely empower uh frontex and other agencies basically and then strike agreements with countries such as libya or for that matter even turkey to push back any many of these refugees and when they go back when they push back they get into abominable conditions Uh, you know, conditions that violate all their human rights and possibilities and so what europe has done is basically to be completely you know just close their eyes to the problem and pretend it is a problem entirely of countries in, in north africa for instance and of course you'll hear all the usual rhetoric about you know how this is all human trafficking these are gangs etc etc but the larger picture here is really about something else the larger picture is many of these european countries have sown chaos in these regions and now say that it's it's still the responsibility of these countries of course this is one aspect of it the other aspect of it is that while many of these european countries refuse to actually take action to help people there's no shortage of scaremongering about the refugee takeover that is a supposedly happening in many of these countries we know that this is an ideology espoused by prominent figures in the political right uh, in many countries in europe where they keep warning about how all these foreigners are coming to take over your land and how the original inhabitants of europe will suddenly be displaced and you know stripped of all their rights etc etc of course a great vote winning project but actually the numbers really show that it uh, compared to the global migrant flows compared to the global <clears throat> refugee flows which are more mostly internal migration the number of refugees coming to europe is really not that much we're talking about in the uh, <clears throat> less than 200000 or whatever but despite these small numbers there is no humane philosophy that any of these countries in europe have adopted in any sense of the word for instance we saw that recently you're talking about the united kingdom signing a deal with rwanda to basically ship back refugees who cross the english channel without even giving them a proper chance to appeal for asylum for staying in the united kingdom for instance they have to do all these process in rwanda there is no uh, possibility or you know surety of the fact that they can get humane treatment during the application process so i think this instance of dozens of human beings treated as completely dispensable treated as mere numbers is really revelatory of a larger the political failure of failure of humanity in actually addressing some of the crises of our time um it's a very heavy story i mean tunisia just blocked 16000 people going across very interesting 
that Tunisia is becoming one of the principal exit points from North Africa, taking over from Libya, where we've heard horrendous stories previously. You're listening to give the people what they want, coming to you from People's Dispatch. Zoe and Prashant, I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Uh, moving along, we're going to Brazil, the tropical Trump, uh, Mr. Bolsonaro, creating mischief again, running uh, for re-election against Mr. Lula. Um, Zoe, you're in Sao Paulo. What's happening? What's happening in Brazil? Well, uh, September 7th is recognized as Independence Day in Brazil, and this date is a day of a lot of mobilization. Um, historically, and for the past 28 years, the Brazilian left has taken to the streets as part of the cry of the excluded. Um, it's a mobilization that often tries to draw attention to the historic inequities. Um, kind of this false independence, independence for who, all of this questioning of what really independence means in a country that's where the majorities are so are still so oppressed and have their rights restricted in so many ways. Um, in recent years, uh, you know, since the election of Bolsonaro, he and his supporters have really uh, taken this day to be a mobilization in support of their own project. And so this year was no different, and it even added the element of being sort of like an electoral campaign rally, which is actually illegal according to electoral law. Um, and so Bolsonaro called on his supporters to mobilize in mass on this day. And so there were huge, huge protests or rallies, however you want to kind of name it, in Brasilia, which is the capital of the country, Rio de Janeiro, where uh, Bolsonaro is from and where he spoke, um, and in Sao Paulo. I was uh, in Sao Paulo and went to, was spent about five hours uh, on the streets with tens of thousands of Bolsonaro supporters. And it was, it was shocking. It was uh, very, very interesting. And it's funny that we started the program talking about the monarchy because one of the strongest messages that I was seeing was, you know, not only people you know, interesting. On Independence Day, you think people are going to talk against colonialism and against their former colonial masters. But interestingly enough, there were a lot of people wearing the Portuguese monarchy flag um, and calling for a return. Some people come for a return to the monarchy. Others calling for a return to the values that were present during the monarchy, which is God, family, and homeland. Um, this was an interesting element, uh, sort of hard to understand, you know, on Independence Day, but okay. There was a lot of uh, people talking about the threat of communism, a lot of signs actually written in English, clearly for an international audience that said the Brazilian people are against communism, the Brazilian people are against communist dictatorship. And I asked some of them, okay, what is, what is this communist menace that you're, that you're so afraid of? What is, what are we talking about here? Um, you know, some of them mentioned uh, the disaster of Argentina, of course, not bringing up the fact that the the economic crisis started with Mauricio Macri's loan from the IMF. Um, people even talked about the crisis in the United States and said that Joe Biden, a communist, um, has caused chaos in the United States. This was also interesting. Um, there was a lot of really interesting messaging that was going out on this day, people calling for military intervention, um, calling for the Brazilian armed forces to essentially uh, take down the Supreme Court, take down uh, judicial authorities that have dared to go against Bolsonaro. Um, 
And then, of course, you have your usual hate-mongering rhetoric saying that anyone who supports Lula, anyone who supports the Workers' Party is horrible, that they're awful communists, that they're against the people, um, they're ugly even. I mean, it was this, I'm only really scratching the surface, but it was a bit scary um, and interesting is the word that I'll say. Interesting. Well, um, interesting indeed. And we're going to go to another place, Zoe, very interesting where recently an occupying government, the government of Israel, has informed people in foreigners, uh, that is, who fall in love with a Palestinian, that they have to register with the Israeli military. When I read that, I thought this is hilarious. Uh, it sounds a lot like what in India was called love jihad, uh, where in a sense there's an attack on romance coming from the right wing. Prashant, I know you're not going to talk about this. You're going to talk about a report on Shirin Abu Akhle, but Come on. If you right. fall in love, you have to register with the military in the Israeli imagination. Come on. I'm a bit skeptical of the word imagination in this context, of course. So, uh, yeah, that's a big issue. But uh, Zoe was talking about how people think Joe Biden is a communist. In that case, Israel, of course, if that was so, Israel, of course, is the land of justice. Uh, because if you look at their recent report, uh, that talks about the uh, killing of Shirin Abu Akleh. That's the kind of incredulous uh, feeling you get because uh, we, we know that Shirin Abu Akleh, a very senior journalist, was assassinated a few months ago. Uh, since then, there have been multiple investigations. It's one. It's a, it's a case that has got a lot of uh, attention worldwide. What uh, remains unique is the fact that Israel and its ally, the United States, the kind the line they have taken about who was responsible for the killing of Shirin Abu Akhle. And, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it, there's a question of, you, I think the attempt is if you keep repeating a lie, you can at least muddy the waters. Or it's something of that sort, because the recent Israeli report uh, talks about, you know, uh, first of all, of course, refuses to give, uh, refuses to ex- explicitly accept that uh, the gunfire was by an Israeli sniper, that the words they use is it's not possible to unequivocally determine the source of gunfire. Now, this is despite the fact that multiple media organizations in Palestine and outside human rights organizations have all given very concrete proof of the fact that it was an Israeli soldier who shot her. And uh, then they use this vague terminology, which says it's there's high possibility that it was so. And then, you know, for uh, good measure also finally says that another possibility which remains relevant is that she was hit by bullets fired by armed Palestinian gunmen. Now, again, this is despite the fact that investigations have proved that there was no gunfight going on at that point of time, you know. And uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's it stretches, uh, it, it's, it's very difficult to conceptualize in some sense because this is, we're not talking about law or something, uh, but in the past, long historical process, this was one incident of which video footage is available, of which multiple witness reports are available and all of that point to just one conclusion. But despite this fact, both is despite this fact, both Israel and the United States have pretty much stuck to that same line. And of course, Shireen Abu Akhle's family has dismissed uh, this uh, probe. Palestinians as a whole have dismissed this probe. They have called for an international investigation. But I think <clears throat> what this sort of uh, encapsulates once again is and you know is, is the kind of uh, repeat the, the pattern, the repeated sort of. Uh, nature of how occupation works. And you talked about one instance, of course, of, uh, you know, how romance is treated. But this is another investigation. There's another aspect. Journalists uh, say political activists being murdered and then all the blame being thrown back at them. 
or Palestinian political prisoners, the way they're treated, how they're forced to go into multiple hunger strikes to protest against a way, protest against a law according to which they get no trial, according to which they do not even know what the charges against them are. So Israeli occupation is now, you know, is now basically entrenched in these series of patterns which justify, which seek, which seek to, you know, make unclear, which seek to muddy the waters of what are clearly crimes that are visible to more and more people across the world. So I think this report is, it's useful for not just journalists, I think it's useful for all people to study, to see how how Israel, it's actually a very useful report to sort of understand how Israel seeks to justify its acts by completely denying responsibility and obfuscating as much as possible. Very important that we keep on this story, not only because, of course, Shirin Abu Akhle was a fellow journalist and, you know, journalists have to look out for each other. Nobody seems to care about our lives and 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 our, our sense of, of safety, uh, but also because this is a touch point in the struggle of Palestinians to um, liberate themselves. And it's a very important story. By the way, once again, just to underline something Prashant said, she's a Palestinian-American a U.S. citizen. Um, once again, a U.S. citizen, her life set aside just because she's Palestinian. Um, very important story. Well, um, on Sunday, the 4th of September, 4th of September is an interesting date because that was the day that Salvador Allende won his election in 1970. Um, 4th of September this year, the Chilean people went into the polling booths to uh, decide whether they wanted to approve a new constitution. Coming up in the next few days, Tarua Zuniega Silva and I have a, a report that will come through Globetrotter about this election. We've looked at it carefully. Uh, people are dismayed that um, the constitution was not approved. In fact, opinion polls from as early as April started to suggest that um, the rejection of the constitution was going to be uh, by a considerable number. There was some hope that undecided voters would come in on the side of the constitution didn't happen. There's some interesting features, and I'm just going to point two out uh, for your consideration. The first is that this is actually the first election conducted in Chile since elections began, which was mandatory. Um, until 2012, from the end of the dictatorship till 2012, um, they had a mandatory um Voting, if you registered, registration was voluntary. Voting, if you registered, was mandatory. After 2012, till this election, everybody was automatically registered, but voting was voluntary. For this election, of all things, the most consequential election, they decided to change the rules and make voting mandatory, which meant 100% of those of uh, eligible age were to vote. Now, important to remember when Gabriel Boric won the second round against um, Jose Antonio Cast, he only had 50% of the electorate come out to vote. This time, about 86% of the electorate came out to vote. The rest had to pay fines. 86%, that's a lot more people than voted just in December to vote for Mr. Boric. The assumption being, those who don't vote um, are going to vote for a new constitution because they are disillusioned with the old one and so on and so forth. Turns out that may not have been the best analysis. Um, why was that not the best analysis? Well, here's a theory. A large number of people who came out to vote um, had a couple of reasons why they might have voted to reject. 
Number one, many of them were evangelicals and particularly Pentecostal voters who don't vote because they didn't see their politics in the politics of the state. But now being forced to vote, they had to vote on a constitution which had several social items in it which they didn't agree with on abortion, on women's rights and so on. So forced the evangelicals to vote, they're going to vote against a liberal constitution. Secondly, as soon as the constitutional process was announced, the right began to um, campaign against it. The left and center left waited till the constitution was written before they started to campaign, giving the right an enormous advantage um, in the election process. So that's the second and I think very important reason. The third is those who campaigned on the approved line largely campaigned on social issues, didn't take up the economic issues that are gripping the people of Chile. And in some senses, we talked to Daniel Hadwe, the mayor of Recoleta, and Daniel told us that even in Recoleta, where, where he is the communist mayor, the people voted against the constitution, despite the fact that he had a massive majority uh, in his last election and that he had an enormous rally the day before the election. Still, the people of Recoleta voted against it. He said that the campaign for approve uh, simply didn't connect with the everyday issues that people are dealing with now, the economic issues. So in some senses, in the same way as Sebastian Piñera, the previous president, was um, punished for uh, his economic performance in the plebiscite, uh, Gabriel Boric was punished in this election and he had to restructure his cabinet. So very complicated election, but by no means... Is it as straightforward as, you know, a dismaying defeat? Uh, a close analysis of this election shows that there's a lot of features that need to be looked at and so on. One of which was that you don't just put a constitution before the people and say, well, what do you think? Uh, much more needs to be done. You've been listening to give the people what they want brought to you from People's Dispatch, your favorite website, peoplesdispatch.org. That's Prashant and Zoe. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. We'll see you next week. Um, the 100th show is on the 20th of October. Bookmark that. See you later.